Welcome to the first of three podcasts on applying antimicrobial stewardship principles to the treatment of community-acquired bacterial pneumonia, or CABP, and acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections, or ABSSSI. This discussion, entitled Considerations for Incorporating New ABSSSI and CABP Treatment Options into Clinical Practice, was produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from Forest Research Institute, a subsidiary of Forest Laboratories Incorporated. It was recorded in December 2013 during the 48th ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting and Exhibition in Orlando, Florida. In this podcast, John Esterly, Chair of the Initiative, is interviewed by co-presenter Scott Bergman. Thanks for joining us today, John. When new antimicrobial agents are approved, what factors should an institution take into account when considering them for formulary addition? I think generally speaking, institutions should use a balance of efficacy data and safety data, and then followed by cost and other available treatment options that may be available for conditions where they think this medication may be used. You know, when drugs are first approved, they usually have limited indications that prescribers may wish to adhere to or may want, wish to circumvent in practice. So minimally, I think an institution should evaluate all the available clinical trial evidence and any other substantial efficacy data that exists. Safety data can be a little more difficult to verify, especially with newer medications, as events that do not occur frequently take time to fully evaluate because data is slow to emerge and it's often underreported. Also, where is this drug's niche? What other treatment options are available? Does it offer other advantages over more established and perhaps less expensive treatment options, or does it not? Then, finally, if deciding to add to formulary, considerations for use restrictions should be given also. Should this medication be restricted to its FDA-approved indications only? Should it be limited? to a limited number of prescribers or specialty consult services, et cetera. This is a process, I think, that can really help pharmacy departments um, and broader institutions ensure appropriate use. Now, daptomycin and linazolid are relatively established agents with guideline support for skin and skin structure infections. What are the potential advantages and disadvantages when considering them in the role of treating ABSSSIs. Well, while these agents are newer than some of the other existing treatment options available for acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections, both of these medications are very established in terms of their efficacy data for treating gram-positive organisms. Primarily, the organisms we're really concerned about with these uh, skin and soft tissue infections. They're both widely active against staph and strep species, our primary pathogens, and have demonstrated enough evidence to the FDA to receive an approved indication for acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections. So they're reasonable options to consider. That said, both are far more expensive in terms of direct drug costs, so they should probably be only be used when other established but less expensive options such as clindamycin, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, and other beta-lactams, perhaps tetracyclines, and even vancomycin no longer exist. Antimicrobial resistance to these agents, drug allergies, previous treatment failures would be some of the reasonable scenarios where you might want to consider linazolid or daptomycin. Some other considerations may be for when empiric therapy is necessary, and there's concern that some of these other agents may not be effective or active. 
Of the other available oral options, only clindamycin would adequately cover both staph and strep species by itself. So combination therapy might be necessary with other agents such as Bactrim or tetracyclines or beta-lactams. Linazolid does have the advantage of offering an oral option that would cover both as well, but we have to keep in mind that it does have some drug-drug interactions to consider if patients are on serotonin-enhancing medications. It can also cause some myelosuppression with treatment courses that are greater than two weeks, or at least there's concern for that. Daptomycin is a well-tolerated drug, but it's only available for IV therapy, so it's not a, a potential oral option. It is dosed once daily and does not require therapeutic drug monitoring like vancomycin, so it may offer prescribers some advantage if IV therapy is required, but on balance, all things need to be considered. And how about ceftaroline? That is a newly approved agent for the treatment of bacterial skin infections and community-acquired bacterial pneumonia. Can you help us define the role for this agent in treating those infections? Yeah, I think the role of ceftaroline in the treatment of acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections and community-acquired bacterial pneumonia is really still being determined. It is clearly an effective drug, but similar to daptomycin and linazolid for ABSSSI, its use would appear to be niche for both conditions at this point due to less robust existing data, lack of current guideline support, and a much higher cost than some of the other available treatment options for both conditions. In situations where MRSA is not a concern, earlier generation cephalosporins, such as first and third generation cephalosporins, have excellent supporting data for use. They're very safe drugs, and they're pretty inexpensive. The clear advantage of ceftaroline over other beta-lactams is that it has activity against MRSA, but it does not technically carry an approved indication for community-acquired bacterial pneumonia caused by MRSA due to none seen in the clinical trials evaluating ceftaroline for that indication. In data published so far, ceftaroline does appear to be very well tolerated, but emerging data may show an increased incidence of leukopenia when compared to use with other beta-lactams. The numbers are very low, so this is just a signal at this point. So the clinical relevance of that concern is, is yet unclear, but maybe something to watch out for. So at this point, overall, the role of ceftaroline is really prescriber preference but more published data confirming its efficacy and really its long-term safety, I think, will help clarify its position in the current treatment armamentarium. Which agents are currently under Phase three study, and which ones are you most excited to see enter the marketplace for these indications? Are they MeToo drugs, or do they truly offer a new therapy modality? Well, two agents that I think are really interesting agents right now are ceftabiprol and dolbavancin, although I'm not sure how much additional benefit they will provide prescribers specifically for acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections and community-acquired uh, bacterial pneumonia yet. Ceftabiprol will be unique in that it will be the first drug to ever come to market that is active against two of the most concerning nosocomial pathogens, so that's both MRSA and Pseudomonas species. It remains to be seen how well this drug performs when available for widespread clinical use, but I believe there are many situations where it would be desirable for clinicians to be able to prescribe single drug therapy and be able to cover all possible unknowns, you know, outside of specific resistance situations, um, to be able to cover them from an empiric standpoint. So this may also be the case in some speciated mixed infections that have previously required therapy with more than one agent. So I think septabiprol holds a lot of potential promise. 
And then dolbavancin will really only provide coverage against gram-positive organisms, but the unique benefit it may provide equates to approximately seven days of therapy with one given dose. So for patients who are hospitalized or even admitted to the emergency department and are being treated for an acute bacterial skin and skin structure infection empirically or even in a directed manner, they may be able to receive one dose of dolbavancin prior to discharge and then not need further pharmacologic therapy depending on their clinical scenario. So, of course, more data is needed before any of these assumptions become reality, but I think both of these drugs have very interesting potential. And why is phase four study, also known as post-marketing surveillance data, important to follow after newly approved drugs enter the marketplace? Well, as we've discussed with many of these newly approved agents, or when we're considering agents that may be FDA approved in the very near future, we do need to think about the process by which safety data accumulates. Many adverse events can be infrequent but serious, so data for such events really takes time to accumulate and are frequently underreported and underevaluated in limited clinical trial data. So in most cases, we really must rely on voluntary reporting from practitioners. In order for this to happen, practitioners must be willing to both make the effort to fill out reports in systems such as MedWatch, but moreover, they must be aware these events have even taken place. You know, due to the nature of phase four data, frequently it can take years for data to become substantial enough for clinicians to make informed decisions. Examples of infrequent but serious issues requiring vigilant monitoring might include QT prolongation with the use of fluoroquinolones and macrolides, or the occurrence of serotonin syndrome with concomitant use of linazolid and SSRIs, as we've previously discussed, and now possibly leukopenia occurring with the use of ceftaroline. Many of these um, events may happen when patients are outpatients, so they can be a little more challenging to capture in that regard as well. But I think in a few years we will have a better sense of whether or not this may be a clinically relevant concern with these drugs. Finally, what can a pharmacist do to help promote appropriate prescribing of newer agents for treating acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections and community-acquired bacterial pneumonia? Well, I think pharmacists are well-positioned to help ensure appropriate use of newer medications for conditions such as acute bacterial skin-skin structure infections as well as community-acquired bacterial pneumonia. I think mostly being familiar with published literature and what con current consensus guideline recommendations are is one of the most important components. While many cl clinicians are going to be familiar with consensus guidelines, they might, might be less familiar with some of the intricacies of many of these medications that are first-line recommendations, and they may still require patient-specific considerations. So where newer agents that have been approved have not yet been incorporated into guidelines, they can fit into this mix, but they can also be confusing and frequently tempt clinicians into thinking that the newest treatment is the best treatment, when this may not always be the case. Understanding potency against specific pathogens, such as whether drugs are bacteriostatic or bactericidal, pharmacologic and toxicologic properties, allergy considerations, organ-based adjustments that may be necessary, and available formulations are just many, you know, a few of many of the factors that may need to go into making an optimal treatment choice. Costs, both direct and indirect, insurance coverage, institutional reimbursement, these are also considerations that are of vital importance. Antimicrobial stewardship programs are usually keenly focused on many of these issues and can be an excellent resource for both physicians and pharmacists looking for information to make optimal and evidence-based treatment decisions. 
Thank you for sharing your answers today. I really appreciate your input, and I know the audience feels the same. This concludes the first interview in this three-part series on managing the treatment of CABP and ABSSSI. Explore the initiative website for additional educational offerings, including the three podcasts in this series, an on-demand webcast of the live activity presented at the 48th ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting, and two e-newsletters addressing regulatory and treatment updates. Visit the initiative website at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash ID. Thank you for your interest in this important topic.